I almost have to apologize for the topic that I chose because it's very grandiose and um, far beyond me. Um, but I chose it anyway. I'd like to speak about truth. And I would hope that you listen to this talk not as the definitive articulation of the meaning of truth, <laughs> but simply as some reflections. Because truth is one of those terms that philosophers have spoken of for um, centuries. And I think some of the wisest um, people have said that one cannot define or describe what this is. Um, but I was giving some thought to the term, so I thought, well, let's just explore a little bit of how this um, term, truth, arises in, um, in Buddhism. But I want to start, before I get to the Buddhist, um, a Buddhist structure, I want to talk just a little bit about the... Um, the term from the um, American Heritage Dictionary. And it defines six kinds of truth or six ways of understanding truth. First, very simply, conformity to knowledge or fact or logic. Second, a fidelity to an original or a standard. The third, reality and actuality. And the fourth, a statement accepted or proven as true. The fifth, sincerity, integrity, and honesty. And the sixth is with a capital T. It actually refers to God in Christian science religion. Most commonly, I think truth simply refers to being in accordance with reality or facts which we know have actually occurred. Now, I want to reflect on truth in a Buddhist context in four areas. The first being truthful speech, actually our verbal conduct around speaking what is true. And the second in terms of our perception, when we say we know the truth of things, we see things as they are, a direct and true perception. And then the third, I want to reflect a little bit on relative truth. And um, for, fourthly, on ultimate or absolute truth. So please take this um, talk simply in the realm of reflection. And hopefully we'll have some moments at the end to hear your reflections as well. So to begin with some thoughts on um, verbal speech, I'd like to begin with a, a quote from Ramakrishna. Um, Ramakrishna is one of the great... Um, saints in India of the last century and he was a devotee of the divine mother Kali quite an ecstatic and extraordinary yogi and he said always speak truth this is the central discipline the person who tenaciously holds to truth will eventually realize God consciousness because God is the living truth by even slightly disregarding the practice of truth-speaking, a person gradually and unconsciously loses spiritual integrity. If I declare that I am going to the pine grove to answer the call of nature, even if I no longer feel that necessity, I still go there. Why? Because I said I would. If I tell the host that I will not take any more refreshments, even if I become hungry later, I cannot eat. The way of truth speaking should be this intense, including even the smallest details of life. It must cease to be simply a vow and become instead an instinctive response. 
I have discarded every possible attachment on the path to God consciousness, both attraction to virtues as well as to vices, involvement with knowledge as well as with ignorance. But I can never and will never discard my passionate commitment to truth, which is both the way and the goal. When I read this, I really considered it as an expression of an extraordinarily deep commitment to integrity and to honesty and verbal conduct. The real incredible invitation to speak the truth, even when it's not convenient and even when it's difficult, and to then uphold what we say in our actions. It's worth considering sometimes if our own word is actually worth anything. When we say that we'll do something, is it done? Is that commitment kept? Can we be counted on? When we make a bargain, do we actually make sure that we keep it? There's an old saying that people are only as good as their word. And perhaps with so many scandals and corporate scandals in the newspapers, we may wonder if that's still a value that we hold dearly. There was a, um, a video um, called The Legend of Bagger Vance. Did anyone see it? You did. Did you enjoy it? It's quite a sweet movie. It's quite a sweet video. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to get it from, um, from the video shop. Um, and it's it's basically a, a golfing movie. Or actually, it isn't really a golfing movie. It, it takes place um, on the golf course, but it's really a movie about truth. And it's really quite sweet because um, Will Smith plays Bagger Vance, who's the, the coach and the golfing coach. And um, Captain Juno is played by Matt Damien. And um, Captain Juno has been, was a golfing Hero, He was expected to be a great golfing champion, but he was called into World War I. And when he returned from the war, he returned as a broken soul. He basically could barely function in society. He spent his time drinking and um, gambling and um, not playing golf. And his community kept asking him to play some golf, to play some golf. And he kept saying that he had lost his swing. And finally, through a series of events, he does enter, he does begin to play and enters a tournament. And through the course of the tournament, he's basically having to find himself, having to discover his swing. And there's this pivotal moment in the game when um, he's actually made this incredible comeback and the crowds are cheering and everything like he can win, he can win, you know, this, this moment of, of the heroes about to make it. And he bends down to um, remove some pine needles from near the ball. And when he moves the pine needles, although he didn't touch the ball, the ball moved about two centimeters. And I never played golf, but I understand you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to move the ball. And so nobody saw it except him and his caddies. So he could have easily let it go. But he... um, um, he instead reported it to the um, to his his the people who he was playing against, and even the the referee and the people he was playing against didn't want to call the penalty. But he called the penalty on himself, and that was literally his moment of truth in the game. What they said in the movie was that that was the moment when he saw the field. 
when he could actually stand upright for the first time and actually know himself, play the game fully. And his caddy, had his, his, um, his coach had said, it's a game that can only be played, it cannot be won, which is very much the experience of life. Would we call the penalty on ourselves? Would we, um, would we be willing to play the game, play the game of life with such integrity and such honesty that we don't believe that it could, that that we could win something in a dishonest way. It was a very lovely, lovely movie. And um, um, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Sometimes we have moments of truth in our own lives when we have a choice. Are we going to stand with integrity and truth or are we going to take the easy way because nobody saw it? And those are moments that we, um, we get to choose how we're going to play our game. I think speaking the truth is actually a very demanding and difficult practice. Um, and perhaps especially in our culture when there's so much communication that occurs at such an extraordinarily rapid rate. Much of what we say may not be actually true. And yet it may not be a malicious or vicious lie either. Sometimes we just speak incorrectly. Or we speak... Amatadatu. Now that is a lovely thing to be reading. Oh, I get the benefit of it. Okay. (laughs) That's really nice. I want, are they going to put one on the other walls? Maybe. Okay. Amatadatu. The emptiness element, the deathlessness, beyond um, the element beyond what can be formed. That would fall into the ultimate category. <laughs> we'll get to that at the end of the talk. <laughs> um, so when we speak, sometimes although we're not speaking what would be called a gross lie, we're just speaking about either what we don't really know um, or we slant the truth. And I think that happens an awful lot of the times that we may just exaggerate a little bit or speak with understatement. Sometimes just to um, make ourselves seem a little bit better, to make a situation seem a little bit smoother, or perhaps just because it's easier. We're a bit lazy. We don't want to take the energy to, um, to describe what is actually true. And these subtle deceptions or distortions are sometimes in our actual dialogues with each other. Or they may be within our own minds, the way that we speak to ourselves and the way we describe ourselves to ourselves. So when we listen to ourselves, listen not just to the words, but also listen to the projections, what that may be influencing it, the underlying tendencies that may be conditioning what it is that we say. And ask ourselves some simple questions. We can ask, is it true? And can I know this? Has anybody done any work with Byron Katie? 
Yes. Um, she asks these questions. Is it true and can I know it? And asks them with the quality of really asking us to scrutinize our beliefs. If we believe something, if we hold a view, don't just hold it blindly, but ask ourselves, is this belief true about somebody else, about ourselves, about the world? Is it true and how do I know it? Whether it's in our self-presentation, what we're speaking about in conversation, or our opinions about how the world functions. Is it true and how do I know it? What is the source of our information that we base something, up, that we base our speech upon? There's a dialogue in the sutras um, where the Buddha is speaking with... Um, uh, a man named Vasetta who is doing um, deity practices to become one with Brahman. And um, the Buddha basically says to Vasetta, who is believing these various teachers about how to become one with Brahma, he's saying these teachings are like um, are just as a line of blind men clinging to each other's backs. The man at the front sees nothing. The men in the middle see nothing. And the man at the end sees nothing. So the words of these teachers can be compared to the line of the blind man. That is, the first group of speakers didn't see Brahma. The next group of speakers didn't see Brahma. And the last group of speakers didn't see Brahma. So he asks Vasetta to consider why is he adopting beliefs based on the words of other people who also didn't experience what it is they preach. So I'd like to next reflect a bit on um, direct perception. And direct per- by direct perception, I mean when we, at- when we see things just as they are, rather than experience it through layers and layers of concept or how we think things are. So in mindfulness practice, we attempt to be really present with things just as they are and to know how it is we experience things, how much of what we perceive is actually what we're what we're recognizing, what we're contacting, and how much of it is influenced by layers of assumption, projection, um, comparison, judgment, um, prejudice, hearsay. Sometimes we talk about things and have never actually experienced them, and yet we talk about them as though we know them, but we've never experienced them, we've never known them. Certainly, we don't know what the experience is of another person. And yet, we may find ourselves saying to somebody else why somebody did something. How can we know what the motives and the intentions are of another person when 99% of the time, we don't even know why we're doing the things we're doing? We may find ourselves standing up and going to eat and have never noticed even the intention to stand up and go get something to eat. We just go around fairly blindly in our lives, and yet we, have a, we perceive something and we think we know why somebody else does something, what their motivations are, what their intentions, their thoughts, or their feelings are. We don't know the feelings of another. We don't know how they experience pain. We don't know how they experience joy. Actually, some things can be communicated, but very much, a lot really is not communicated. 
And so our perceptions are mixed by our own interpretations, by our own projections, our desires, how we want things to be, and our assumptions. You often may find as you're meditating that the mind is lost in thoughts, literally imagining our own lives, not experiencing the moment of sitting, but imagining a life outside this room. We can spend a lot of time lost in fantasy, identified with the story of our lives, but in that removed from a direct perception of what's real in that moment. Perhaps the feelings of the breath or the contact with the seat. That could be what the reality is in the moment, and yet it may be very simple and we may be totally out of touch with it as we're imagining a movie that we saw last week or um, an event that we're going to um, prepare to engage in. Mindfulness asks us to cultivate a direct perception so that our, our perception is refined and clarified, to be present simply with what is. It may be by feeling the clarity of a breath that's not confused by the experience of a previous breath and not anticipating the next breath. Not distorted by ideas of, oh, this breath should be deep or it should be smooth, but just the breath as it is. It could be taking a bite of food and experiencing the tingling and the coolness and the, um, the flavor of that bite without assuming, oh, it's a strawberry, it should taste like this. Or, oh, it's sour, it's not good because it doesn't taste like that. And in the same way that we can be present with a flavor or a breath, Can we be present to each person that we speak with without the layers of prejudice and assumption or hearsay or being influenced by gossip or fears or judgments? But can we, right in the midst of a moment of interaction, drop into a luminous wakefulness that encounters that moment, that person, that breath, that taste, completely free from the distortion of how we think it should be. We can enjoy a naturalness, a kind of vivid clarity in our perception when we're perceiving things just as they are, unmarred by the imaginings of layers of concepts. I think many people who, how many people here have done a retreat of at least a weekend? Ah, many of you. No doubt you've tasted this, whether it was by just taking a step in a walking meditation and actually being there for that step. Or sitting in meditation and finding that the mind is going off and off in layers of thought and story and thought and wandering. And then you just connect and you feel the pressure of the sit bones on the seat and that uncomfortable feeling. But in that, you connect and you go, ah. There's something more real, something more vivid, something more present, something more vital about this this unpleasant feeling of pressure in my buttocks 
than there was of all of those stories that I was telling myself about past and future. And when we connect with a moment, even as simple and mundane as that, we're connecting with something that could be called more true, something more real, a simplicity of direct perception. Just that pressure, just that tingle, just that vibration, just the heat, just the cold. Without the stories that we say, it should be like this, it should be like that. Or without the thoughts of, oh, this is happening, so I am a good meditator. Or, oh, this is happening, so I am a bad meditator. All of the judgments that we spin around. Whatever is happening in our experience, perhaps when we're sitting, or perhaps in our life, is it enough? Sometimes I think we go off into the stories of our lives because we're actually not satisfied with the simplicity of tingles or coolness or heat or pressure. We need to entertain ourselves more. And it's worth sometimes just asking ourselves, is this enough? Is the reality and the truth of the moment enough? Can I be satisfied with this? And then consider, is our story, even our best story, is it more satisfying than being present for the, what is actually true in the moment? Whenever I've reflected on that, even with my best stories, and I've come up with some doozies, <laughs> some real good, exciting plans, um, I actually would prefer, quite honestly, to be present with some tingles and some coolness and some heat and some pressure and some vibration to actually be in the room where I am. Sometimes when I meditate, I don't have grand notions of, of being, um, I don't know, awakened to the truth of things in some big, fun, funny way. Sometimes I just set the parameters of, can I keep my mind in this room? You know, just try to keep the mind in the room. Like ideas of travel to other places or things I'm going to do in other parts of the world or other parts of the city. Can I just keep my mind in the room? And sometimes a parameter like that is a little bit bigger than my breath. And yet, if you ever try it, you'll find that's quite challenging just to keep the mind in the room, to keep the perceptions in the room, even with the eyes open or the ears open or the, um, the breath, the body, just... Just simply being here. Sometimes the mind, as it drifts off into thoughts, um, it's, it's driven by a kind of de um, desire for, for discursivity, for thinking, for talking. And it, it seems to be driven almost by a desire, I find, to make things more significant than they are. To make an experience more significant than it is to make a day more significant than it is, and most especially to make my own life more significant than it is. And sometimes that push towards fantasy takes me away from the real significance of something very simple that's happening, like being awake to what's present in this space, in this room, in this heart, in this mind. When we um, cultivate this direct perception of mindfulness 
and come into contact with what is true and what is real without the interpretations of concept and assumption, without the overlay of conceiving of things to be this or to be that, to be like this, to be like that, to be compared to this, to be compared to that, without the distortions of I, me, and mine, then we begin to experience something that's quite real, though it may be quite simple. Um, In the middle-length discourses, the Buddha says, for however they conceive it to be, the truth is necessarily other than that. So as the third reflection, I'd like to discuss relative truth. Because these two truths, relative truth and ultimate truth, are often paired as the two truths in Buddhism. Um, Much of what we do in our practice is part of this category that we call relative truth. The Eightfold Path, the practices, the methods, the techniques, the progress, the insight. The things we cultivate, such as mindfulness, concentration, loving-kindness, equanimity... Um, compassion, steadfastness, ethics, wise conduct. These are all aspects of relative truth. All of the insights and developments that lead to the end of suffering are facets of relative truth because they are conditioned. The wisdom that discerns what causes happiness and what leads to harm And then the actions that come out of that wisdom to cultivate what is skillful and to abandon what is harmful. Those are very important aspects of relative truth. Insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. This this is a very important Um, insights that occur in the exploration of relative truth to see the relative truth of conditioned phenomenon that everything that arises ceases that everything that is conditioned is subject to change these relative truths and explorations on the relative level are not discarded or diminished when we speak of relative truth and absolute truth. I don't think it would be correct to think of relative truth as the poor cousin to ultimate truth. That if only we could get ultimate truth, that would be it. We don't need to bother with those relative truths. Or we only do that as a sideline. Somehow the idea that relative truth is less than ultimate truth. I don't think that's accurate. They're twin truths, inseparable and without contradiction. Because how would we know the ultimate except through the understanding of the relative and the limitations of the relative? The ultimate truth now refers to the unconditioned. I um, I wanted to do, when I was in Santa Fe last month, I wanted to do a program, a weekend program on sutra study on the ultimate teachings of the Buddha. And I wasn't sure which um, sutras I wanted to use when I needed to put the, you know, 
make the announcement and make the flyers and do the initial initial announcements. So I picked a general topic and I called it um, uh, the discourses of the Buddha on the ultimate or the ultimate teachings of the Buddha uh, uh, weekend of of study and meditation, something general like that. And then I had to figure out, okay, so what are the ultimate teachings of the Buddha? And I started to find that that was a rather profound question. What are the ultimate teachings of the Buddha? Who'd like to, uh, who'd like to tell me? <laughs> what are the ultimate teachings of the Buddha? The Four Noble Truths. Okay, who else would like to, to put something forth? The Eightfold Path. Okay. The ultimate teachings. Ultimate teachings of the Buddha. To be awake. To be awake and aware. Okay. Did you have some? No. The concept of impermanence. Okay. Okay. You're getting all really, really essential and important teachings of the Buddha. And as I thought of each of those, I thought, well, okay, I'll put that's, that. I wouldn't put those in the ultimate category. I'd put those in the relative category. Those are the important relative teachings of the Buddha. And so I had to keep thinking. So think a little bit more with me. What are the ultimate teachings of the Buddha? Please. Freedom as the goal. Okay. And did you want? Amitadhatu. <laughs> okay, great. And? Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me, as, my, or as, as me or as mine. Okay, great. Well, what I ended up doing was I ended up going through sutra after sutra after sutra and sort of perusing all of the various things and pulling out teachings that were on Amitadhatu, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine, the teachings of non-clinging, teachings of, um, of specific, that specifically referred to Nibbana or the unconditioned or the deathless element or um, um, the unborn, um, those various sort of key words that referred to the un of things, <laughs> to the not of things, to emptiness. And then I had this mass of sutras and tried to sort through, okay, how to, wh- how to then sort of piece together something that can be coherent in a weekend. What was really nice is it wasn't coherent, um, which I was so happy with because if they had left understanding what the ultimate teachings of the Buddha were and understanding emptiness and understanding the deathless element, grasping a concept of it, then I would have been really unsuccessful. But fortunately, we were able to raise quite a few questions with this compilation of sutras, which was quite interesting. So I've taken this question, what are the ultimate teachings of the Buddha, as a kind of reflection itself. And to whatever answer I come to see, okay, is that conditioned? And if so, what's it conditioned by? How can it, how is it conditioned? Because whatever concept we grasp, even if it's the concept of emptiness, then becomes grasped, becomes a concept, becomes taken as something that then is subject to all of the conditions and becomes relative. So, of course, one of the sutras, which many of you may have heard heard um, said, is one of the classic ones I'd like to read from the Udana. There is an unborn 
uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape possible here for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is an unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is discerned from what is born, created, conditioned, and formed. In the sutras, the unconditioned is often described as nibbana, as cooled, not as a thing to attain and not an experience to claim, I have had the experience of nibbana, but simply the experience of coolness, of ease, of freedom, of luminous knowing, of a mind that is utterly free of greed, hatred, delusion, clinging, defilement of any kind. Now, the Buddhist teaching on the ultimate um, include a number of sutras where it describes um, the possibility of consciousness without a footing, of knowing without a place to land without knowing this or knowing that, without grasping concepts of this or that. Even the wholesome practices that Ramakrishna referred to in the opening verse, that he had given up even the, um, the, 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 the attachment to wholesome practices, to virtues, let alone, of course, vices. When I was um, living with Punjaji in India, he had one time, um, well, many times, but, but one particular time he used this phrase with me. He said, um, it, was, it was shortly after I had arrived, I'd been there less than a month, and he said, Shaila, you are very, very close. You are just a half step from freedom, just a half step away. And of course I got excited, right? Like I was about to be enlightened. <laughs> that was really cool. And so I got really excited thinking, just a half step. If I just practice, just open a little bit more, just a little bit more devotion, just, you know, I was just a half step from freedom. And so I thought, I got, you know, like, that was, I thought that was pretty exciting and a compliment or whatever. Anyway, of course, I totally missed the point. <laughs> and I was one day, um, Everybody was in the satsang hall listening to Punjaji, and there was a, a screen, and I was responsible for cooking lunch. So I was sitting outside the screen. I could hear much of what he was saying, but, but you know, in fragments, little bits. And I was slicing the cabbage um, for the um, for the sabji lunch. And the Ganga was flowing by. I could see the Ganga from where I was. So I could hear his voice. I could see the Ganga. I was cutting the cabbage. And I wasn't particularly thinking about being a half step away and what was I going to do to get it. And all of a sudden, I got it. It was like I understood something. And inside a sight arose. And aha. And it was like a half step. What's a half step? Lifting. Moving. That's enough. I didn't have to place. I didn't have to land. So that's a half step. A half step in life of knowing is perhaps seeing without the grasping. Perhaps knowing without the rigidity of concepts that we put around it. 
Perhaps the touching without the, the grasping, the clinging. Perhaps the arising without the, um, the way that we try to amass, to hold, to accumulate, to grasp, to cling. I suddenly understood the half step that we are always, every one of us, all the time, a half step from freedom. It's a way of asking us not to grasp, not to solidify views, not to grasp a hold of concepts. It's just a half step away. You are a half step away from freedom. That's all. That close. Not a full step. Just a half step. There's something um, that struck me when I was reading the middle-length discourses, where there's... Uh, I'm sorry, this is not the middle-length discourses. This is the um, um, the collection on causation, on Samyutta Nikaya. I put the wrong thing in my notes. Uh, it says, Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall, having windows on the north, the south, or the east... When the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? So the Buddha asks this question, and the disciple says, The shaft of light, my Lord, will land on the western wall, of course. And the Buddha says, Well, if there is no western wall. And the disciple says, Then on the ground, Lord. And then he asks, If there's no ground, Then on the water, Lord, and if there's no water, then it does not land. In the same way, when there's no passion for form, contact, consciousness, or intellectual formations, consciousness does not land and grow. That, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. It is the end of suffering. Now, one of the things that I found so beautiful as I was reading the sutras was that he teaches not that it, that it is not enough just to not cling, but that that freedom from clinging must be realized. It must be known. The illustration that um, Poonjiji used to use, as many teachers have used, is of a fish that swims in the ocean. And it cries out, I am thirsty, I am thirsty. And yet, as it opens its mouth to cry out that it's thirsty, the water is in its own mouth. It isn't enough to be swimming in freedom. But we must know that. We must realize the end of clinging. We must apprehend the end of suffering. We must know the mind that is liberated, not just not clinging, but know the mind that is liberated from attachment and liberating from the underlying tendencies toward attachment. This shift from the ending of experiencing suffering, experiencing dukkha, experiencing um, grasping, ending that, to knowing our freedom is the is 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 the um, the maturing is the wrong word because that implies a growth, but it's the realizing of liberation, the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of ignorance and of delusion is known. This ultimate truth is a simple 
truth. As Sogni Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, has said, it's not that you become totally oblivious through awareness practice, not at all. You simply do not tie knots around your stream of experience. Usually when people like something, they tie the knot of liking. When they dislike something, they tie the knot of disliking. Tying the knot of liking being happy and disliking being sad all the time. Knots are being tied by grasping, by clinging, by fixating. The message of this teaching is experience whatever takes place, but don't tie yourself to it. Don't get tied up in knots. So the ultimate triumph manifests as a knowing of our experience not tied up in knots, an ordinary mind that is uncluttered by the preoccupations and confusions of desire, aversion, attachment, identification. As Lomchempa said, enjoying everything, simply leave it as it is and rest your weary mind. So what is the relationship between relative and ultimate truths, between methods, ways, and progress, and the final liberating knowing of our freedom? Ajahn Chah said, the heart of the path is so simple, no need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate, just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Relative practices are like fingers pointing to the moon. They are insights and practices and techniques that lead us beyond themselves, that direct us to see beyond the technique. So we don't fixate on the finger that's pointing to the moon, but we let them point us beyond themselves. As Rumi said, what good is knowledge if it doesn't lift you above yourself? And yet, though we use this image of the pointing to the moon, relative practices don't lead us in a linear progression to liberation. The ultimate is not merely the result of progress in the relative level. Instead, there's a mysterious dynamic between these two truths, an active and indistinguishable interplay and interconnection that's not bound by hierarchy and not bound by relationship. Punjaji said, simply keep quiet. Let things happen in front of you and enjoy this universe which is offered to you. Don't make any effort and don't even think and you will know who you are. Don't think of the past or of the future and within within you, you will find what you have never found before. So can we remain quiet, vigilant and alert until we know that in truth we are free In truth, we are liberated, we are peace, we are love itself, as the fish may know that it is in the water. I'd like to end with the Dhammapada, a verse that reads, Of all the medicines in the world, myriad and various, there are none like the medicine of truth.
Therefore, drink of it. Some comments? Discussion? Now, who knows the truth? Please. I have a question. Sure. Would you tell me your name? Eli. Eli, thank you. Thank you very much, also, for your reason. The question is, is there an equivalent practice in Theravada Buddhism to let Tibetan Buddhist practices like Dzogchen or Rigpa? Yes. Usually we spend a fair amount of time in the Theravadan tradition cultivating the relative. And the um, Tibetans do as well. They spend a lot of time cultivating the relative before um, in the Tibetan system one would experience, uh, uh, would meet a master and receive the pointing out instructions in Sogchen. But we like everything really fast in the States, and so we want to go right to the ultimate. And, um, the practices of mindfulness and the qualities that are cultivated in the mindfulness practice um, usually stay very um, in relationship to objects so that we are mindful of something. And through that we cultivate a mind that's very clear and that understands the conditioned nature of experience. So we understand that things change and we begin to free the mind from all forms of grasping and the grasping around concepts as well. Through mindfulness practice of mindfulness of breathing, we develop a mind that is clear, that's um, concentrated, that's steady, that's collected, that's wise, that's discerning. Much of the um, practices in Sogchen require tremendously subtle investigations to discern the difference between a direct knowing and a conceptual knowing. And all of those investigation practices are contained within the, um, they, I mean, they're different practices, you know, just as there's a myriad number of techniques, but the essential component of discerning the relative to the ultimate, that which is bound by concept and that which is beyond concept, um, also certainly occurs through the progress of insight in, um, in insight meditation practice. The difference tends to be that um, in insight meditation style, we really work the relative. We really, really work it. Um, um, so we, we make very, you know, just... We work it. <laughs> and in that, we do quite a bit of work. Um, but at any time in the mindfulness practice, when you release the object and maintain a mind that is, um, when, you, when you, your mind is free from all of the defilements, all of the, the hindrances, all of the, um, the preoccupations, all of the grasping, and, then, and the only obscuration left, is the relationship to the breath, the relationship to the object, then you can play with not just knowing of object, you can play with knowing of what knows and knowing of, of knowing, knowing that the dynamic, the, the mindfulness doesn't need to be fixated on an object. But in this style of practice, that's fairly subtle. I wouldn't suggest a beginner start with knowing of the knower <laughs> or exploring that, but instead cultivate a mind that is so stable and clear, undistorted and unconfused, that there is no more clinging and grasping going on. 
And then when that level of wisdom arises, then the, those, the, the te- techniques of, uh, and the mind that is malleable enough to shift off of its preoccupation with object is just as available. And certainly Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Buddha Dasa have trained people in, um, in, in, in methods that um, also you know, reveal the, uh, the unconditioned, as well as many other masters. But this path does tend to, like, um, I guess work the relative is the way that I would say it. Um, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Make sure, the, um, make sure the wisdom is there. Make sure the virtue is there. Make sure the mind is stable. It's really stable. Please. And that's printed in his book? Yes. Um, oh, I don't I have his latest. In front of it and I, I just use one of the handouts, um, but I'll, I could make copies of it if anyone was interested because it was very, it was a yeah. question for me what's the, what's the connection, or what, if any, between the teachings of, of non dual teachings of suction and, yeah. and this particular path. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's great, I think. Um, Maybe you two can get together and, and get the get the um, pho- the photocopies. It's yeah, that's wonderful. So who's going to tell me the truth? <laughs> I, I do have a question. Sure. love somebody could make an argument that pointed out that there were some contradictions I just can't find them Um, I really don't find any contradictions I think to find a contradiction I'd have to cut them I'd have to have to cut the systems into pieces um, and compare across pieces and it seems too fragmentary. Actually, my experience of meditation practice and of living with Poonjaji was of no contradiction at all. That they both, um, the Buddha taught freedom and Poonjaji loved freedom. Um, uh, and Poonjaji used to always say that I was a Buddha bhakta, emphasizing the love aspect, the bhakti, the, the devotion quality. Um, I just never felt the contradiction. And then in practice, um, Punjaji would sit all the time. Would now what, whether he was trying to do something, I wouldn't think he was trying to do anything while he was sitting. But there was a love of of um, and a devotion to to what I don't know. Just maybe 
It's hard to say that there was a devotion to something. It's more like there was just devotion. Just peace, just truth, just love. And I don't see any reason to um, try to create any conflict between them because I just don't think there is any. I know that doesn't really answer your question very well because somebody could take a line from Punjaji and compare it to a practice of Buddhism or something and say that there was a contradiction or could compare one system against another and find contradictions. But essentially, it's all about freedom. It's all about non-grasping. It's all about realizing beyond the conditioned. Um, Punjaji's teaching had relatively little interest in understanding the conditioned nature of experience. You know, he wasn't, he didn't spend much time teaching that things were impermanent or that they caused suffering or da 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 da. Whereas in the Theravadan tradition, we tend to work that realm um, so well that we get tired of grasping things that are always changing and get tired of being attached to things that can't possibly cause a, create happiness for us. Um, get tired of identifying with things that we know perfectly well to be empty. So we kind of work those, those relative things and cultivate a heart that is kind and compassionate and balanced and um, a mind that is clear and wise and concentrated. So we do more of that kind of cultivating the wholesome, abandoning the unwholesome and being undiluted with the nature of things through the insight practices. And that's kind of the direction of it. And yet in that, I see no contradiction with that exploration as with Punjaji, who tended to go more for the um, do nothing. Don't go to concepts of past or future. Don't bring, give rise to the illusion that you are doing something of meditating, that you're creating a self who is doing an action, that is. Like, don't give reality, don't give substance to those views in the conditioned world. Um, so he tended to have a different kind of approach. Um, but I don't see a contradiction in them. It's just like looking this direction or looking that direction. Or, or, or seeing, like if I see this, I can see the carpet and I can see the shawl. And there's really no contradiction between them. So I know that doesn't answer it very well, but... Any other questions on truth or... No? Well, then I'd like to thank you for coming today. It's lovely to see you. And um, I expect to be back in December. So um, I look forward to seeing you in December and hope you'll join, join me then.